Welcome to season two of Souls in the City. I will be completely honest. It actually hasn't been a full year since I launched Souls in the City. I first aired an episode with a guest October 22nd. So we're not quite at the one year mark. But I thought considering last week was the 50th episode and it was kind of a reflection. Might as well kick off the new season right now. So here we are. I'm so excited for, um, you know, this episode and some of the upcoming guests that I have to share with you guys. I really want this new season to be kind of a mixture of lighthearted conversations and, and, and like um, educational stuff as well as some really raw, authentic um, conversations as well. So I'm excited to see how the podcast continues to grow and just evolve over this next year um but before i dive into this episode with lucy fink who is so awesome she has always been someone i've looked up to so recording her with her was just a dream um i did want to quickly talk about one of my sponsors which is sakara sakara is amazing it is like a exactly what i need in my life because again i am not a big cooking person but it's really nutrient-dense ba- uh, and whole food-based uh, meal delivery service. So I talked a little bit about their three-day program that I did a couple weeks ago. Um, I just tried their metabolism super powder, which I surprisingly really liked. I'm not a big fan of like things you scoop into stuff, <laughs> but I actually really liked it. Um, and again, if you are interested in trying things out, it's like a new year if you're of the Jewish faith, um, or I like to call it a new year because, you know, I was born in September, um, and get off to a good start and really like reset your body. I highly recommend doing it with Sakara, and you can get 20% off your order if you use my discount code, which also helps me grow the podcast. So it's a win-win. Um, so all I have to do is go to Sakara.com and use the code XOZOE at checkout. Uh, but without further ado, here is Lucy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so honored and excited to be here with Lucy Fink, who is an American YouTube personality, lifestyle host, and fellow Hopkins alumni. Hey, everyone. How's it going? I'm so excited. Just for some context, we are here in Washington Square Park, so you never really know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, luckily, these microphones collect sound that's close by, but you never know. So anyways, if you don't mind just telling me a little bit about yourself, where are you from, how old are you, where did you grow up, what's your story? Yeah, so I'm 28 years old. I grew up in Scarsdale in Westchester and lived there in the same house for my whole life all the way up until when I went to Hopkins and went there in 2010 through 2014. I initially was a pre-med neuroscience major who made a transition in the middle of freshman year into the media route. And I became a creative writing major and went to seek out a career in media. 
Right after school, I worked at Ogilvy & Mather, the advertising agency, as an associate producer for about a year before I transitioned to Refinery29 to host a lot of their YouTube content, and I was a producer and a host for them for another three to four years or so. And as of 2019, I kind of went off on my own, started my own media company, and here we are today. Uh, I'm signed with the United Talent Agency, and I just sort of run my own channels, my own Instagram, my own YouTube, and now TikTok, <laughs> and, and the countless other platforms that pop up every week. That is so awesome. I know a ton of my listeners and probably fellow Hopkins alum follow you and watch your stories and see you around. And um, I know even though we just missed each other, I graduated 2018, so started 2014. Um, I know I like knew your name <laughs> from afar. Um, but going back to growing up, you that you grew up in Scarsdale. I know a ton of people. I know about like the scavenger hunt that you have the senior year. Road rally. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was that like? In Scarsdale, you know, I was so blessed to grow up in that town. It's a very, very amazing school system. I really felt when I got to Hopkins that I was prepped for the workload Mm -hmm. and also, you know, little tiny things that I noticed that Scarsdale students found easier once they got to college, such as putting together an essay or just general grammar. Like I felt like I got an incredible education. The downside of it, I guess, was the nature of being in just such a competitive bubble for whatever is the best word to use for that. It was definitely one of those school systems where there was a lot of pressure, not only from a lot of the parents who had high hopes for their kids, but mostly from the deans and the school itself. It was a lot of emphasis on college prep, which, of course, I'm immensely grateful for. But I I do I definitely did feel that pressure. I was super lucky that and really grateful that my parents themselves were not necessarily academics or in the the camp of parents who were just incredibly pushy about getting a job in finance or going to be a doctor in fact my dad is a radio dj in westchester and my mom is an interior designer and she was a stay-at-home mom and they sort of you know built their own life for themselves my dad was really big on the radio in the 70s and 80s when that was the biggest platform so it's still on the radio today but did really well for himself in the media world in that way And actually, when I transitioned out of medicine, contrary to what most people would think, with your parents being disappointed in you, my mom, for one, and my dad, obviously, with his media background, but my mom, for one, like the moment I told her I was transitioning to be on TV, she was like, well, that's where you're meant to be. Like, you were really (laughs) never meant to be a doctor. So I, I never felt that parental pressure. But the school system itself, it was definitely a rigorous four years of classes and training and it really paid off by the time it got to Hopkins definitely and then another rigorous four years (laughs) and another rigorous four years but to be honest the writing seminars major I I hate to say this if someone's going through it and struggling but I felt it was so easy it was one of those majors where no classes start before noon you you don't have that many requirements. And to be honest, the requirements are like fiction and poetry, which Mm -hmm. I know it doesn't come easily to everyone, but for someone who loves being creative, it was like a joke. Like if I felt like I was just going to class and having the most fun I could possibly have writing stories about characters, writing poems, which it's just incredibly subjective to write a poem that you're not really going to do bad, you know, poorly on a poem. 
Um, and I felt like it was just such a great space to let me flex that creativity and flex that muscle and learn just about different techniques and be able to explore without there being too much pressure, contrary to my pre-med friends. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny too because the writing seminars program is like one of the best in the world. I know. So <laughs> it's one of those things that's so under, like, underknown, or that's probably not the right word, but I had a lot of friends who were writing SEMs and I took IFP as a requirement. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's definitely um, all my friends who studied that enjoyed it and had an incredible experience. Um, but going back, so I know you have a twin sister who you're really close with. What was it like growing up with a twin? Because I have a sister two years younger, and we fight all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that you're really close. You even, like, chose to go to the same college. Were you, was it ever, did you ever feel like you were competing or you're your own unique people? I think our parents did a great job from a young age at, really drilling into our heads that we are not in competition with each other. They never made, you know, those little subtle statements that a parent could make that would maybe make a kid feel like they're in competition. Like, oh, Lucy's better at this or Allie's mm -hmm. the smart one or whatever. They never made those statements. In fact, they just, they always did the opposite where they were telling us that we're individual and we both have strengths. And I just remember from a very young age, I guess the biggest difference of being a twin than not being a twin is that especially growing up in a town where being a twin is rare, which I think might be the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> but in, it was definitely kind of rare in Scarsdale. And we just couldn't really go anywhere without people just associating us with each other, which we didn't mind. But pretty much being a twin like played into my everyday life because people were so curious about it. So I, I got questions like the biggest question I got is what does it feel like to be a twin? <laughs> and me and Allie, we would just laugh at that because we'd be like, we can't tell you what it feels like. That would be like me asking you, what does it feel like to have a younger sister? Yeah, it just and happens. You just don't know what it feels like to not have one. So same thing with being a twin. We just had no concept of what it would feel like to not have a sibling that was in the same grade. So I couldn't explain it to people. But if I had to, it, especially towards high school, it really started to be this amazing comforting feeling of knowing that I just had a best friend in my grade that was always going to stand up for me mm -hmm. versus someone else and even if you have a really close best friend like you never know if that person's gonna stab you in the back or go gossip about you when it came to a twin at least the closeness that we were I just had zero level of doubt that she would ever turn against me or you know, say something negative about me to someone else. Our parents actually drilled into our heads early on that one thing we cannot ever do is talk about the other to a friend. If we have something that we want to talk about, we have to address it to each other, but we're not going to be like backstabbing our yeah. twin. And so I think especially in high school, as we were sort of navigating friend groups, which we were always part of the same friend group, but we were sort of trying to figure out our place. We were not huge drinkers and partiers. And a lot of the friends that we fell in with were, and it was just so great to have each other and to think, wow, we could just stay home tonight and bake cookies and have a sleepover <laughs> in each other's rooms and know that we have a built-in best friend basically for life. Yeah, that's amazing. And did you guys have similar interests? We were similar in a lot of ways in terms of friends. And, you know, we had similar activities we like to do on the weekends and games we like to play. But career and school wise she was always not interested in the creative 
whenever we had to do a performance or read something out loud, like a public speaking engagement or anything about creative writing, she was like, I can't come up with an idea. And she was definitely more interested in just the logical math equations. Yeah. I, on the other hand, was not bad at math. I was actually good at science and math. I was going to be pre-med, <laughs> but I just didn't. I used to, I remember I would run home and get my math homework done first so that I didn't have to do it anymore. And I could like spend the night enjoying my writing assignments. Yeah. She would be like, uh, like so upset about the writing assignments. And then she'd like revel in the easy logical math equations. It's like left brain, right brain kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think another area that was interesting, a lot of people always wondered if we were competitive from a school perspective and with grades, which can be tricky at least in our school system they didn't let us be in the same class Mm. all the way up until I want to say high school maybe middle school we could have taken like an elective together but we were always separated in different classes and by the time high school came around and we had the chance to choose classes together we were so excited about that and completely contrary to what someone might think or to the way someone might feel when they were taking a test alongside a friend or you know something like that, I remember like genuinely wanting Allie to do better than I did on tests Yeah. because I cared. I almost cared for her like a child and she's (laughs) my older sister by one minute. She's definitely the older one. And like, I'm definitely the baby of the family, but we both have this care for each other where we just want the other to be safe and have the best that they can. And she's the only person in the world, you know, now, aside from my husband, that I would, like, compromise myself for. Like, I would want her to do better than I did. I would want her to be safer. We we had this joke when we had sleepovers that I I normally am, like, the scaredy cat and a sleepover who wants to be, like, furthest from the door. When Allie's there, I'm like, I need to be next to the door so I can protect you if anyone comes in, even though That's she's so older. Cute. Yeah, it's, it must be. I don't, I didn't study, like, psychology or anything. <laughs> ironically but um it must be something with the younger siblings because my sister is the same way like she's the most amazing writer and I just never had that knack whereas like I was an applied math major and I was very like logical and she's writing all these beautiful essays about the (laughs) pandemic right now and I'm like nope but um it's definitely it plays well because there was never that like direct competition for the same kind of thing um, so even though you were so creative, what made you want to go pre-med? I always had this interest, just kind of a personal interest in medicine and science. I I wasn't even that interested in science, like biology or chemistry as a subject in school. It was more so that I was just always watching shows like TLC's A Surgery Story. Yeah. Or I, I would go on YouTube and like type in... <laughs> This is so gross, but I would type in like C-section birth video <laughs> oh my God. and I would just like wanted to know how this stuff happened. And whenever, you know, I remember when I was young, there were like open heart surgeries on TV occasionally and my whole family, especially my sister, would run out of the room and <laughs> gag and I would be like glued in front of the TV watching it. And I think I just noticed that about myself and it drilled it into my own head that if I can sit here and watch this, maybe I'm meant to be a doctor. My mom also had a friend who is a plastic surgeon. And when my mom noticed that I had an interest in this, she contacted that woman and asked if she could come to our house one day. She, she came over with this kit of pig's feet and like a suture kit to teach us, to teach my sister and I how to like suture 
pig's feet together. Oh my gosh. And my sister wanted nothing to do with it. I, of course, was like eating it up. <laughs> Not literally, <laughs> but was sitting there and sewing the pig's foot together. And I also think because of my art interests, like my mom being an artist, and I always followed in her footsteps when it came to things like painting and drawing, I think I had those like fine motor skills to have the interest in doing something like minute sewing yeah. of a pig's foot. And I just felt like it was my thing to be medical and especially choosing colleges. We didn't choose Hopkins because of the science side. It was more so like we looked at a bunch of schools, we picked our favorites, we waited to see where we got into and then we chose the best school that we got accepted to. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up choosing Hopkins like partially because it was just a great school and partially because we had visited on spring fair weekend and we were like, this is so fun. Yes. We loved the weather. We loved the layout of the school. So many reasons why we chose it. But I think once I got accepted there and I was like, okay, well I had this medical interest and now I'm at Johns Hopkins. I I might as well. And so I really just, I didn't even declare what specific path I was going down. I think I was just like a general undecided major, but on the pre-med track. So I was taking kind of those like intro classes. I never even got to like organic chemistry or anything intense. I was taking like cognitive neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience. And I, I loved the classes. I remember like, I still remember the things I learned in them, which is how crazy it is. Like I could still draw a diagram of the eyes and the brain and how we see That's things so in cool. the world. And I'm like, so still so interested in it. And even since college, I've listened to podcasts and read numerous books about the brain and the body I just think being at Hopkins and being surrounded by the type of student that really is destined to be a doctor yeah definitely opened my like, eyes oh, yes. okay <laughs> opened my eyes to like okay got it so this is just an interest and I like watching c-section videos but I'm not destined to go down this 15 year journey and you know I think I'm more destined to speak and be in front of people and be in the entertainment industry and I just sort of realized it and then because I don't think there's like a film and media studies yes um but you chose creative writing and then did you dabble at all in media while you were there yeah I believe I graduated with a film and media studies minor okay I didn't choose to major in it because I started taking a lot of the intro film classes freshman and sophomore year and I recognized that it wasn't exactly, it's really, really well suited to a aspiring filmmaker or mm-hmm. a videographer or someone who wants to be like an expert at old films, <laughs> but yeah. it was really not, there was nothing modern about it. It didn't, it wasn't digital media. They do have the DMC, the digital media center, yep. which I went to and like learned a lot of video editing programs. And I, I used the DMC often to like edit video content. But there, there were no classes about social media or digital media. And the film classes really focused on, like, the use of non-diegetic sound in a Hitchcock film or, like, the angle of the yeah. camera to portray fear. And it's, like, I'm glad I learned that stuff because, obviously, for any video creator of any sort, it's good to know old films and it's good to know the names of these producers and directors and just general, like, camera styles and equipment. But... I didn't feel like that was as useful for me. And so I really poured my my energy at Hopkins into creating my own video content in the admissions office. And that was, you know, my freshman year, I actually pitched the show to the admissions officer while I was still (laughs) pre-med just because I was like, I just want to do this as my extracurricular. 
I pitched the series called Learn More, See More, Be More, a travel show about Baltimore, to the admissions officer. He accepted and let me do the show. And after, after I switched out of pre-med, I really started pouring more time and attention into it. But it by the time I was a junior, it had switched from being like this volunteer thing I did for admissions to a paid job in admissions because I made a really good case for why it should be a paid job once I started hearing from incoming students that they applied to the school because of my video. That's so cool. I probably did watch it. <laughs> I kind of remember that on like Prio, like seeing the... Yeah, they played it in a bunch of places and it it also just was really useful for international students who couldn't come to see the mm -hmm. university or the city. And so that was... It was just really fun. I had no idea what I was doing. I had never been on YouTube, and it was just a fun experience. That's so cool. I, like, had no idea, but I was actually talking to a friend earlier who, well, I actually don't know if he was, he was involved in media. He still is, and he was like, oh, and I said I was um, speaking with you today. He's like, oh, yeah, she, like, did this cool stuff with um, the admissions office. And, was, and so, <laughs> you know, you have a fan there with, with <laughs> <Tom> Matt. Hi. <laughs> I will. So you went into advertising, doing production, and then how did that translate into Refinery29? So at Ogilvy, I was kind of like, well, I was definitely low totem pole level. I was a, I think I started as a production assistant, a PA, and then got transferred to an associate producer while I was there. But I was pretty much working with this team of high-level producers who were producing it wasn't necessarily commercials for brands but they were producing what is called branded content so okay. which is now way more popular yeah. but it's basically just like little pieces of entertainment content whether it's a youtube video or just like snippets to play on tv that are paid for by a brand but they don't really appear to be sponsored they're just like little stories okay. and so we were working with like healthcare clients and science companies nothing like consumer friendly or that fun but it was a really cool experience because I went from being in Baltimore creating these like YouTube videos for $200 a pop to having like $2 million from a brand to pull together a video where my team was traveling to Russia and Vietnam and Turkey and I wasn't going anywhere. I was sitting <laughs> in New York on 11th Avenue just like organizing binders of appearance releases and logging the footage. But it was still really cool to like see my team go and come back and then see the finished product and get to sit in the edit suite while it was being pulled together, work on giving the brand notes and incorporating their feedback and just feeling like I was part of something that I was then going to see on TV one day. And that was really cool, but I still felt like I was, I, I felt like I was missing the opportunity to do something that was just relevant to my age and my demographic and like my friends. Mm -hmm. And whenever people asked me what I wanted to do, the only thing I could come up with was I just want to create video content that if my friends or if I saw it while scrolling through a Facebook feed, I would stop and watch it. Yeah. And that also tells you like where the world was at. Cause I said Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So it was like people were using Instagram just to like filter photos for Facebook in that time. And I just remember all I wanted was to be making video content that was relevant to people in our generation. And I also like couldn't even have fathomed a job like what Refinery was doing because those digital companies like, weren't exist, yet yeah. doing, you know, they existed maybe, but like Refinery was just a 
clothing site for a really long time before it transitioned to be what it is. And even once it transitioned, it wasn't hiring people to be digital video talent until 2015 when I came in. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I just I had no idea how to explain what I wanted to do, but I just kind of knew the things I didn't want to do, which were... You know, I really wanted to be on TV in some way, but I didn't want to be a news reporter. And I really was not interested in like red carpet, celebrity gossip, yeah, hosting opportunities. So I was just sort of holding out, hoping that like something lifestyle related <laughs> would come up. I actually remember after Hopkins, because I had this big reel of my videos at Hopkins, I tried to get an agent and I went into this agency and... I think it was like a friend of my mom's knew someone who worked there. So they like somehow got me in the door and I met with this man and he was just like, like I thought I had this huge portfolio and he's like, you've just made a few YouTube videos. <laughs> like you really haven't done much. I can try pitching you out for some like red carpet things. You know, I think he gave one example of like, maybe you could host a red carpet, like VH1 segment in Philly. And I was just <laughs> like, uh, this really doesn't sound right. I kind of agree. I don't have experience. So I'll just, you know, go work at Ogilvy and see what happens. And totally, this is like the best networking story ever, but I met this woman at Ogilvy who was the chief creative officer at Ogilvy and Mather North America. She was this big wig at the company, like you could never get time on her calendar. And I somehow snuck in 15 minutes of her time and used it as a complete interview type moment, even though it wasn't mm -hmm. an interview for anything. I already had a job. I was just meeting with her and sharing with her everything I've ever made and it might be worth mentioning that at the time at Ogilvy that was like when I started getting into stop-motion video production which really was what kind of I think launched my media career because yeah. I, I started creating these little stop-motion videos on the side of my job at Ogilvy started sharing them on my Instagram it started to grow my Instagram in 2014 from like, you know, 300 followers to around like two to 3,000 followers. And I was just, literally my face wasn't on it, but it was just like my video artwork of stop motion animation. Stop motion's like when it slowly becomes like a bigger and bigger picture kind of thing. Stop motion is when an inanimate object moves on its own. Got it. And you create it through a series of still images that you string together. And so it, like would, time it would look almost. like this cup on this table is like sh moving across without a hand touching it. Got it. So it looks like these little like magical animation. Today, like loads and loads of brands use stop motion for all sorts of like short form digital advertising. And actually, it's become super popular nowadays with, like, things like TikTok or Instagram stories because it's really easy to make yeah. by just, like, tapping and moving <laughs> the object. But back then, it was – I <laughs> back then, five <laughs> years ago, I basically was watching, like, old-fashioned YouTube videos about how they made, like, Gumby and Wallace and Gromit oh, to, yeah. like, learn how to do – it was, like, claymation type thing. Yeah. But I wasn't using clay. I was using, like, pizza or donuts <laughs> or, like, real objects. And my Instagram account was growing from this. And in at some point in 2014, I got a email. It was like a friend of my brother's friend reached out. She worked for this. Uh, she worked for this online e-commerce company. And she was like, I've seen your stop motion videos. How much do you charge? We'd love for you to make one for our Mother's Day campaign. And I was like so shocked. Like, how much do I charge? I do these for free. And I think I threw out like $100 as how much I charge. And she 
felt so bad. So she was like, well, we could give you 500 if you want. And I was like, well, that sounds great. So I did this one project for her, which then spiraled into like at least 10 new brands that I worked with within the next few months. And every time I had this total like fake it till you make it mentality where they'd ask me my rate and I'd just like continue raising it to see what happened. Eventually, by the time I had met with this woman, back to the Ogilvy story, by the time I was in the room with this woman, I was showing her not only my Hopkins videos, but my stop motion content, telling her that I built this little business of my stop motion. And I could just tell that she went from like the moment I walked in the room, she was kind of like, I'm busy with other stuff to like by the end of my conversation, I think she realized that she had someone creative in her room and just remembered me. Mm -hmm. Fast forward about a month, I'm sitting at my desk at Ogilvy and my phone starts ringing and it's her. And I'm like, why is the executive (laughs) calling me? And I pick up and she tells me that she's moving to Refinery29 to be the COO. Had you heard of Refinery before then? I had heard of the, like the word, (laughs) but literally that like all I thought about it was that I actually thought it was a recipe website because my friend had sourced a recipe from them. Got and it. I had I was not like super into fashion, so I wasn't following them when they were a fashion blog. I just didn't know it was anything. So to be honest, when she told me she was going there, I was kind of like, why? Like <laughs> I didn't even say that, but I was thinking like, why would you go from this big global giant to a tiny company that no one's ever heard of? Like I feel like when I graduated, it was kind of the thing to not be at like a small startup, but to be at a big yeah. established company, that was what was considered like a good job. And so she told me she was leaving. And then about a month into her time at Refinery, she Facebook messaged me to basically tell me that she wanted me to come work there on the video team, to which I was like so uninterested because I had literally never heard of them, never saw any of their content, didn't think they were anything special. And thought Ogilvy was this big giant. And kind of even to further that, like my parents, who are very untraditional, as I told you, my parents were even like, why would you leave this big 100-year-old ad agency to go to this company that could go under tomorrow? Like, you just don't know what it is. And I completely agreed, but I went in to meet with the video team. And I realized it was like this hip, cool office in the financial district There were a ton of women. It looked like a really chic workspace. And they offered me, the only reason I really considered it was because they offered me a job that was like exactly what I wanted to do. Freedom to create video content, host videos, produce, be in them. And they matched my salary. So I was like, okay, well, I have nothing to lose. Yeah. And I'll try it. And very quickly within, you know, a month of my transition to Refinery was really when this like boom of digital media happened and it was when snapchat was becoming really popular and refinery got a little bubble on the snapchat discover page which is how like millions of new people came across our content and within a couple years of being on camera there i had grown my following to 100k on instagram and i wasn't really growing my youtube back then but people were still subscribing to my own youtube because they were finding me Mm-hmm. And so they were like watching my old videos that I had uploaded and it just kind of opened the door for me. So that's crazy. That's like so serendipitous. I feel like it's like when you put out the like the energy and like the positive vibes, like good things happen. Mm-hmm. It's like so much manifestation. I love and it. just to further that point, I feel like 
so much of why I was able to be successful in getting these opportunities, I really believe can be attributed to the fact that I was just like doing work even when it wasn't for anything. Mm -hmm. So going back to Hopkins, like I was, and I didn't even consider it work. I thought of it as like my fun side projects, kind of like what you're doing now with this podcast. But I was doing the video content at Hopkins just for fun, which then led me to getting the job at Ogilvy. And then when I was at Ogilvy, I was making these little stop motions just for fun because I enjoyed them and turned it into this little business. And then by the time I was interviewing for Refinery, the refinery team thought the fact that I had this little like stop motion Instagram business was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, we have to, you know, we need you to come work for us because we don't want you to go make stop motion videos for another company. Yeah. It's so funny. I was telling someone the other day, but I, my therapist gets really mad at me because I'll, I'll tell her whenever I refer to my podcast versus my corporate job, I call it like my real job. And then like, my podcast and she's like no like call it your job yep. <laughs> it's a job like, and so I'm, I mean I'm working on it still I still like slip and say real job versus pa like passion project but like as you said it's you kind of did it for fun and you're like oh I can also make a profession out of this and love every minute of it so exactly and I I'm one of those people who I don't necessarily encourage people to jump into a side hustle before they know that it's going to be financially stable. Like by the time I left refinery, my, my like personal stuff was no longer a side hustle. My personal branding and brands coming to me to do sponsorships was more money than my salary at refinery. So mm -hmm. I felt like completely stable making that leap. And I would encourage people to like, at least feel some semblance of stability before they jump. But I also like, I feel like I have this other side of me that believes like if you just decided to quit your other job to do your real job which is your podcast <laughs> tomorrow I like fully believe that just because you are putting out into the universe that you are now focusing on your podcast and this is your job you would figure out a way to make money and to live and to do it and it would be I'm not saying it would be easy but it would when you're thrown into the fire and you have to figure it out you will work harder on it than you would if it's just always this side background thing for you. Exactly. It's like even with the pandemic as bad as that's been in so many ways, it has given me the freedom to connect with people and record with people who are on the different side of the country, which is now more normal because so much of it's been remote. So, um, yeah, it is exciting. And I'm like putting out the positive vibes that this will continue growing <laughs> specifically like now that we're almost almost on our year anniversary here. Yes. <laughs> so when you were back when you were kind of doing the video content in Refinery29, is that when you started putting your face on camera more? Yeah. With the exception of Hopkins, where I was on camera, at Refinery29, I, I remember going in with a little bit of uncertainty. You know, my job title was associate producer and on-camera talent. So I, I knew that I was being brought on to be on camera at some point, but I was told very clearly when I, w was, when I finally agreed to the job and we signed the contract, I was told very clearly that it might not be immediately. Like they mm -hmm. needed to figure things out. They still were sort of hiring and building out the video team and they didn't want me to be upset if I came in within the first few months and wasn't on camera yet. And I remember saying like, it's fine. I just, <laughs> it, I don't, 
it's not I'm not even doing that where I am now. So if it's a slow build, it's a slow build and I'll focus on stop motion in the meantime and that's fine. But then literally like the day I walked in, I I actually remember I like peeked my head into the office where our chief content officer was sitting and they all, they all called me Fink at Refinery, which is <laughs> like no one else calls me Fink. But I peeked my head into the office where she was and I was just kind of saying like, hi, I'm here. It's my first day. And she was in a meeting about Snapchat where they were just about to get a Snapchat bu- bubble. And as I poked my head in and I, w- I said, hi, her name is Amy. She was like, Fink, Fink's here. Oh, Fink can be on Snapchat every Friday. Fink Friday, Snapchat. And like, I literally just went into production to start making videos for Fink Friday on Snapchat. And it also just, you know, pretty quickly started transitioning into the YouTube side of things as well. So... Mm-hmm. As soon as I got there, I remember I was kind of like sitting around asking what to do because at any other job I ever had, which was one other job, I was an associate level, which I figured meant there's people above me telling me what tasks to do and I'm not just coming up with the ideas. Yeah. And so I sort of like sat down at my desk the first day and I, I asked our production manager, like, who am I working for? What am I supposed to do? I assumed I was going to be like an associate producer to an executive producer and he was like, what do you mean? What are you doing? Go pick up a camera and shoot a show. And I was like, shoot a show? Like, <laughs> what? what show do you want me to shoot? And he's like, what do you mean? You pitched us five shows in your, interv- in your like, interview with us. And I look back at the notebook where I read off a few show ideas, one of them being the five-day challenge format. I didn't have the name Try Living with Lucy yet. I just called it I think I called it the week I dot, dot, dot. And it was like, this is the week I had no phone. And this is the week I yeah. was a vegan. And he literally opened my notebook and was like, five days, go shoot a first five day episode. And I was like, with what? And he's like, because <laughs> I didn't have any equipment or whatever. And he's like, use your phone. And I was like, okay. And I remember I, he finally let me sync up with this other girl who's now one of my best friends in the world, Lauren Magenta. And he's like, Magenta will help you. And I guess everyone was called by their last yeah. name in that <laughs> office. And so she started helping me. And we came up with the idea that the first episode would be five days without a phone. So then I was like, well, now I can't shoot it on my phone because I'm not supposed to have my phone. So we like were borrowing people's phones. And I, I was like pulling this guy. For some reason, there was this guy in the office who was a videographer who was like riding around on a hoverboard in the office. <laughs> and I just remember being like, can you follow me to the grocery store? Like I'm, I need to film a scene where I'm walking out on the street. And he literally like on his hoverboard was filming me on the street and then gave me the footage and I had to just like edit it and figure out what to do with it. And it was just like kind of a mess for the first few weeks. But eventually I had two, three, four episodes of the show that I would show to the bosses and they would approve them. And by the time I had, I think five episodes shot, They said, okay, we're now going to put the first one up on YouTube this Friday. And you're now five weeks ahead in terms of content. So just keep going. That's awesome. And it was like a complete, like, DIY situation. (laughs) Yeah. And when I watched those early episodes, I actually, like, as the producer I am today, I watch those episodes and I'm like, these are so bad. (laughs) Like, they're, they're so short. There's no information. Now when I make YouTube videos, I'm like... 15 to 20 minute videos, a lot of information. I know YouTube loves long videos. At the time, I was like, people have no attention span. We need to give them three minutes to five minutes. And it's just funny how things change. But I wouldn't 
change how it all worked out because it was just like complete scrappy learning from the ground up. That's so cool though. Were you at all worried about putting yourself out there? Like, cause obviously the internet's so trolly <laughs> and people have nothing to do but project their own insecurities. Like a hundred percent. Um, I, I think being on camera at Hopkins sort of helped with that because I got a little bit of a taste of how mean people can be. At I Hopkins? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I just like on YouTube because oh, the, yeah, the yeah. YouTube videos were public, obviously, and like most people watching them weren't my fellow students. So I definitely kind of got a little taste of that at Hopkins. But when I when I got to Refinery, I remember like I was well aware of the fact that there would be some negativity. And I I remember like kind of forget who it was that I was talking to, but someone made some analogy to me about how like a celebrity, you know, you can't be too scared about getting too big before you've done anything. Like you, you haven't even started. And if you're too scared, you're never going to start. Yeah. And so I, I said something like to myself, I, I made this declaration where I was like, listen, I really want to do this video stuff. I know I want to be in video content and be on the internet. And I know that's going to come with a lot of shit. So it's up to me. Like, it's not up to my, my parents aren't pushing me into this. My husband's certainly not pushing me into this. Like there's, there's no one but me who wants to do this. And if I don't feel like it's, it, if I don't feel like I can handle the mental side of reading negative comments about myself or dealing with internet trolls, then I don't have to do this. And I can just say like, you know, I'd rather have a career behind the scenes. I'd rather just be the producer and produce someone else on camera. And if I want to go that route, I can. But I realized that if I actually did decide to do that, I would be more upset yeah, than I would be if chance. I was just doing it and reading negative comments <laughs> that people had to say. Because I, I, could, I had this like foresight into a world where I decided to not be on camera because I was like scared of what people thought. And I knew I would be the kind of person who, for the rest of my life, saw any other young girl like me on camera being like so jealous being mm -hmm. like I can do that why didn't I do that and I felt like that would be more painful for me as a person than it would be to just like as Brene Brown says put myself in the arena and just do it and realize that you don't really get any positive outcome on social and digital media without getting negative I love Brene Brown She's I so love great. her so much <laughs> yes. but that's awesome and it's true and I feel like the, yeah, the only just thing worse than, you know, a, a few just negative comments is that regret that like stays with you of like I of not going for something that you deep down know is for you. Also, as a person who has now been, you know, doing it for a really long time and has received a whole breadth of different types of trolling comments, I've actually gotten pretty intrigued by troll psychology to the <laughs> point where at, at one point during quarantine, I was getting completely trolled by this one girl and like normally I don't throw any energy into a troll. I will just like mute the account so that I don't have to see it or you know if it's really bad block the account but for the most part I just like let it kind of sit there and I, I don't care. But this one girl's comments were just consistent. It wasn't even that they were like so horrible. They were just nonstop on every photo and I reached out to her to ask if she wanted to zoom with me <laughs> because oh my god I was like I'm just I, I'm really curious like what I what is it that is you know so triggering and I'd love to know because I felt like 
you know, I already knew in my heart that it was her own issue and not me. But yeah. I was just like, maybe I can help her. Like, she seems like she needs help. So I asked if she wanted to Zoom, and she surprisingly did. Wow. We got on a Zoom call, <laughs> and she was like broke down in tears telling me how many therapists she sees and how she's been through eating disorders and she has no relationship with her family and telling me how everything I post is triggering to her. And wow, I'm like, I completely understand now. I understand. I get it. And I just like, we, we sat on zoom for like an hour. I was just sending her so much love and like telling her, you know, how I approach when I start to feel jealous about things and like just trying to help her. And she was just so grateful by the end. And I was able to unrestrict her account and she left a really nice comment the next week. And I was just like, you know, it's it, at this point, it's not even about like, I don't, I definitely don't need everyone to like me. It's not about that. It's that when someone is like incessantly attacking you, it just, yeah. I was so curious, like what is the root? And it just was proof for me that, you know, these troll comments shouldn't really deter at all from you because it, it has literally nothing to do with you. And it's, it's actually like none of your business. It's yeah. someone else's personal stuff. And sh in this case, she just felt the need to write something negative to try to make herself feel better. But clearly it wasn't making her feel better because she was writing it every week or every day. Um, but yeah, it was a very interesting experiment and I was excited to do that. Yeah. It's complete projection. I like was talking to um, Hannah Burner, I had her mm -hmm. on the podcast and she's on reality TV and it's funny cause she's, she also has a mental health podcast and I feel like we both kind of like psychoanalyze people. So she'll say like, you know, sometimes someone will comment something and I'm like that, you know, this person probably has issues with their dad and sees how close I am with my dad. And like, yep. it's funny how we just kind of, we're s people are just, I think also curious and want to know like okay what is it about this that's making this person feel uncomfortable and needing to say x y or z and it's kind of awesome that you're able to just <laughs> really you know get her on the phone and show that it's like for lack of a better phrase like kill him with kindness right and yeah I, I think you just that's the only way to really handle it because you know I've tried loads of response techniques to see what happens and of course every troll is different but I've ultimately what I have come to the conclusion with is that like when someone writes something mean if I write back something kind that either you know answers their question and then says something nice or it's just like a complete nice way to respond to a mean comment without fail one of three things happen either they delete their comment because they feel bad and they're like oh crap I was so mean and she was so nice <laughs> that's embarrassing they delete their comment B, they either respond back with like, oh my God, I love your videos, like something nice. Or <laughs> they'll get be like, attention. Th like they respond back with something like, oh, I, I hope you didn't take that the wrong way. I didn't mean for it to be rude. And they try to explain what they meant by it. And they like actually end up being nice and you end up being friendly with them. Or the third case is there are trolls where you respond something nice and they just continue to troll and write back something completely ridiculous and out of left field and like those are the people that you shouldn't even write the nice thing back to next time because yeah. they're really just posting to get attention. They thrive off of how many other people like their posts. Uh -huh. to like I, I actually them. like think that the feature on Instagram that I don't know if you've ever used it, but the restrict feature. I don't think I have. I don't have and that many I followers. I think they, they have it on YouTube as well. It, it might be called mute on YouTube, but basically it's a feature where if someone's writing constantly negative stuff to you, you can restrict them which means 
that it's it's different than blocking them. If they're blocked, they know they're blocked because they can't find your account and they will then like maybe create a fake account and write on your post being like, you blocked me. If you restrict them, it means that they they are still posting whatever they want and they still see it, but literally no one else can see it. And I think that is just like the worst thing for a troll because when they're posting, they just want a hundred people to like it. And if no one's liking it, they don't know it was hidden. They think no one agrees. And, and they so all eventually stop. they'll stop. That's yeah. That's good advice. If I ever blow up, I'll, I'll, I'll like keep that in mind. Yes. Restrict as many people as you want. So before I jump into my final questions, I have to ask, because I know next Monday is a special day for you and me both. <laughs> me, because it's my birthday. Oh, wow. And you, because it's your first one-year anniversary. Yes. So I was hoping you could quickly, like, summarize the story of you and your husband, because it's so cute. <laughs> yes, of course. Love talking about Michael. So Michael and I went to high school together. We grew up in the same town, but we're in different elementary schools and, and never really crossed paths in middle school. We met in high school. He was a grade older, and he it was kind of a classic story of, like, the guy having a crush on the girl and the girl being like, I'm not interested in you at all. And I was gallivanting around with, like, all these other boys that I would thought was, like, way better than him. I was super <laughs> interested. He was an athlete and on the baseball team, and I was, like, interested in the drama club boys. I was in the <laughs> drama club, and I was, like, I was interested in singers and actors, and, like, that's what I found attractive more than an athlete. And he just, like, unlike the way you want a boy to be in high school, he was, like, really into me. And, of course, you want all the guys that are not into you yeah. at all. So I was completely friends with him but like not having it relationship style and he he actually asked me to be his girlfriend like six times before oh we ever gosh. kissed <laughs> and which is like also funny because it's like in high school you're the way it sort of happened in my school was like you start like hooking up with someone and at least like you're seeing each other before you agree to become boyfriend and girlfriend yeah. and like I don't know if Michael was like traditional or like <laughs> what his deal was but he like just wanted to like go from being nothing to being a boyfriend and girlfriend and I was like I'm not even attracted to you <laughs> so we were just friends for a really long time and it, friends to the point where it was probably like abusive on my part because I would like call him to like cry about the other boys that I was yeah. into and he would just like listen to my stories and help me we would have late night chats until like 3 or 4 a.m. if I needed his advice on something and he'd like fail his Spanish test the next day because I kept him up all night. So his parents definitely didn't love me at <laughs> first. <beginning laughs> at first. But you know, I actually it's like so weird, but I had a dream one night where we kissed in the dream and it was like very cool. And I woke up feeling like maybe I saw him differently because of the dream. And the next day when we were hanging out in person, I initiated a kiss. And it just so happened to be that on that day, like after I initiated the kiss, he went through with this plan that he had in action that was inviting me to prom. And the oh. way he did it was actually over my dad's radio station. Oh, that's so, so it, like, cool. So it played out on the radio after I kissed him, which, like, I didn't know he was about to ask me to prom. And it was just this weird, like, I was interested in him. And then the prom proposal happened. And we just, like, immediately started dating at that point. And it was the end of his senior year. So we had, like, a few months of dating. 
after two years of just being friends. So we were dating a few months and then he was going to Middlebury where we initially broke up. I think we ended up breaking up for like 10 days because we broke up when he went to school because he just wasn't sure he wanted to be dating someone long distance. But then like after he was there for a couple weeks, we both were just like, we want to be long distance. So then yeah. we got back together and ever since then stayed together. Even when I went to Hopkins, we stayed together and we just did the whole long distance thing for, I guess it was five years because we had my four years of college plus his mm -hmm. first year when I was still in high school. So yeah, five years we were long distance and we basically saw each other once every month or once every couple of months. We'd like alternate going to visit each other and then graduated when we graduated college we i think part of the reason we were able to successfully do long distance is we both knew with certainty that we were going to new york after college yeah a lot of people like ask like how how you can make it successful and like i think you need to have an end in sight and you need to have certainty that you're going to be in the same spot at some point in the future like whether it's 10 years or two months you, I don't. I think it'd be really hard to just be like, well, we'll see what city we decide to live in and work in, and hopefully it works. We really knew where we were going to be. There were no questions, and we moved to New York. We both lived with our own friends for two years in the city until we moved in together in, I think it was like 2017, um, or actually, it must have been, I get so confused with times. I think we maybe moved in together in 2016. So, yeah, I graduated 2014. We moved in in 2016. And then we got engaged in 2017. Wow. I think. I'm, like, so bad with these dates. But <laughs> we got engaged in, I think, April 2017, married in September 2019. And then now it's been a year. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> that rem this story almost reminds me of um, Clueless, where Cheryl wakes up. She's like, wait. I love Josh. The nice guy. <laughs> yes, exactly. And honestly, there were a few elements of that where along the road, like throughout high school, during the time when I didn't like him, there were some other girls in my grade and his grade that he would start like seeing randomly. And I remember kind of being like really intrigued and being like, why did, what does she see that I'm not seeing? Yeah. Cause like this girl's really pretty and cool and she likes him. It's so, like, what am I like totally blind to what's right in front of me? And I, I totally was. <laughs> and you know, he's now, I just think Michael has been, it's been such an incredible journey to grow up alongside someone from high school to now, obviously like we're still so young. I can't imagine how I'm going to feel when we're like 80, but it's just, I've like watched him change and grow into the man that he is like he was like a teenager when we started dating and now he's this man and it's like it's just been so cool yeah and I'm sure from the flip side like he's seen you start like your whole business right and like become just someone making you know little YouTube videos at Hopkins and helping students get into like yeah yeah having your he, own he was Instagram empire behind <laughs> the scenes of like all the early stuff like he was he was there with me in I guess it was 2014, 2015 when I was doing little stop motions on my <laughs> iPhone in my apartment. He, he was the one clicking for me <laughs> at different times as I moved the products on the plate. And he got to, you know, witness that to like then coming with me to TV appearances and being behind the scenes. And I think it's probably been really cool for him too to watch that. Definitely. 
Hello, everyone. Wanted to quickly pop in and talk about another one of my amazing sponsors, which is BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the largest online counseling service that I use, um, and I can't say enough good things. Like, I am obsessed with my therapist. I've only had, I think, two or three sessions, maybe, but she has been unbelievably helpful, and I just really love how you can communicate with uh, your given counselor, like, multiple times during the week you can leave them voice notes you can text them it's like really what you make of it and yeah I mean I talk about therapy and how much I love it all the time so to have to work with a group that is making therapy more affordable and more accessible is the best thing so if you are thinking of you know dabbling in therapy or trying it out there's no better way to start than with better help all you have to do is go to trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe and you'll get 10% off your first month. Um, and therapy is expensive, of course. I mean, BetterHelp is a much more affordable option, but they do offer financial aid and other ways to make it more affordable to you. So again, trybetterhelp.com slash Zoe. I promise you will not regret it. All right, back to the episode. Okay, so I always wrap up with a couple of questions from... The New York Times. So the first question is, what's one thing in your life that's hop- happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Oh, wow. They get really deep. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that's happened to me that's made me a stronger person today. Um, I would have to say, without getting too deep into it, that early on in my, in my uh, career, I guess it was like in college still when I was going on to different TV appearances, I had like an early experience of being, having a male mentor who was, it was then completely twisted out of context. And there was actually articles that went out in tabloids about me when I was in college, basically saying that I was like having an affair with this male news anchor. Wow. And, uh, it was obviously not true, but it was just like so scary for me to be like, is this what the industry is like? Like, do I really want to do this? Um, and, you know, fast forward to recent years, this male was actually one of the Me Too men. So it really freaked me out that, like, it could have been a thing, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't for me, but it probably was for other women. And I actually think when that stuff came out, it was kind of like put a, it sort of put a pin in it for me and, like, helped me get over it because I realized that, like, whatever I was stressed about was so minute compared to what other people probably went through. But um, I think that experience like freaked me out and made me maybe not want to be in media. But it just also made me realize that you can't, you know, as long as you know that you're doing the right thing and you know that you're not doing, you know, something that you shouldn't. Or I guess in the case, in this case, it wouldn't have even been my fault. It would have been yeah. like a, a man. But in whatever situation, you just have to know that, like, as long as you feel confident in who you are and are in your own resolve like you can't really listen to what others are saying about you and that was like my first experience it wasn't even like a troll experience but that was my first experience of of having content about me that wasn't necessarily true like spread out to the world and I just realized like if I was going to listen to all that stuff I'm never going to grow in my career and even on I remember on some of those articles like there were some comments that were like oh well this girl's career is over which actually now that I think about it I'm like 
well, that's like so effed up that people would be like because this man yeah. was preying on her her career's over which by the way like he wasn't preying on me and my career wasn't over but like you can't the fact that someone would write that and so i had up. moments where i was like is my career over like that's so scary and um i think it the fact that i was able to get through it and then the way the world shook up with the me too movement just like opened my eyes to that and yeah definitely wow. made me stronger and that's how like just being in college like being so young and being like you're having your name out there with negative connotations is like yeah, there's already so much like crap to deal with in college definitely like, <laughs> Hopkins oh my gosh I can't even <laughs> imagine balancing more do you have a favorite mantra or quote that you live by Ooh, I have to say it's fake it till you make it and <laughs> I, I love that quote and I know I've like said it a couple times in this call but I to be honest it's I always try to justify and explain to people that I'm not I'm not insinuating that you should fake skills or, you know, put something on your resume that you don't know how to do or pretend you can do something more so, especially in the digital media space. I think so many people are afraid to do something because they just like don't know how to do it when the truth is nobody knows how to do it or nobody knew how to do it when they were first starting. And the only way to really dive in and learn is to sort of just like fake to yourself that you know what's going on and recognize that you don't have to know everything yeah like have the confidence of knowing like go into it being like I've I'm a pro at this just so you like keep telling yourself that that it's it becomes innate (laughs) yeah or it's and even like you know with pricing yourself out for things there's there's no like rule book on or guidebook on how to price things or what what you should charge for your services or your products. It's like up to what you feel is the appropriate rate for you or is what you want to make from something. And because of that, I always just say to people like when you're when you're talking to a brand or you're talking to a company, your energy and your conviction in like what you're saying is going to dictate how they react so if you say like you know I guess I guess you know I could do it for like 50 bucks or like I don't know whatever you want if you're like all wishy-washy that's one thing but if you just go in and you say okay that costs two thousand dollars let me know if you want to move forward yeah you know they might say no but eventually negotiate you're gonna and you're gonna ultimately be able to the more you value your own services and your own time and your own pricing like the more others are going to respond to that well. Mm -hmm. And so I just always try to say to people, like, that's what I kind of mean by fake it is like, I know you're not that confident in the moment, but just fake that you are because it will come off to others that you are. And then something good will happen from it. But if you just are like, well, I don't know the answer to that yet, so I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to move forward. It'll never You're never going to really grow. Yeah. That's great advice. It's like, a weird comparison but i've been doing wag a lot like walking dogs oh yeah and people are like well, so what's your rate for rover because they don't have it like mapped out i'm like um i don't know like what do you want and they're like i, I don't know like, what do you <laughs> usually charge so i need to just, i need to figure out my wh- rover wh- rover rate rover rate <laughs> next question is what do you love most about yourself Ooh, um i i really love my energy my I guess I mean that in the spiritual sense, but also in the physical, like, vibrancy sense. I get from a lot of people that I'm, people always say, like, how are you so energetic? And I know, like, in general, especially 
for people who have like a period cycle, like there are diff- different energy levels at different times in the month. But I gen- generally am like high energy and I don't really go through periods of being like lethargic or wanting to curl up. I like really love being active and being up and I don't even mean like working out. I just mean like walking around the apartment and doing things and mm-hmm. cleaning things or making things. I, I probably get it from my mom who like literally doesn't sit down and puts on like those mop slippers on her feet. So as she walks around, she's cleaning the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I really value that energy and I especially start to value it in times when I'm feeling sick. And like, if I'm, if I'm ever feeling sick, like that's the only time I'm like, I need to lie down and rest and in those times I get super like I I feel the emotion of like why wasn't I more grateful for my energy (laughs) levels before because this sucks to be like bedridden yeah and so I I really like how I'm able to kind of just keep on a positive spirit and bounce around I think it also just makes other people feel welcome too like it makes I, I think good energy is so great both for yourself and for other people because it's infectious Agreed. (laughs) And last question, which is the name of the podcast, (laughs) is how do you find solace in the city? Oh, wow. How do I find solace? Well, I recently started going for morning walks, which is very relaxing, even in the city. And I really just try to turn my apartment and my home into my own little sanctuary. So I poured so much attention into decorating my apartment. And I'm only there for two years. And I know a lot of people kind of see an apartment as like a passing thing it's not a house that you live in forever so people don't really make it into a home but like every apartment space I've been in so far I and by like by the way not expensively but I just decorate it really well so that it feels like really happy to be in yeah and especially in this apartment I I specifically picked this apartment because of the windows and the natural light and I just like love bright white spaces and when the sun shines in and I completely have like taken this apartment space and transformed it into my only regret is that it's not bigger but I've transformed it into like a getaway yeah and so when I'm in it it feels so peaceful I get so much sunlight I'm like warm and cozy and the decor just makes me so happy like when I was away from the apartment over the coronavirus pandemic I was just like sad because I was missing my decor (laughs) And now I'm so happy to be back in it. But I think it's so important to kind of going back to that energy, make your space feel energetically positive so that you enjoy being home, especially now. You have to enjoy being home. (laughs) Yeah. All those people who are like, yeah, I'm never going to spend any time here. Come March 17th, we're like, oh, I'm going to be spending a lot of time here. (laughs) In general, like pandemic aside, I love being home. Like I'm not a huge party person. I don't love going to a bar getting a drink after work I like coming home and cooking and like relaxing at home and so it's always been important to have my space be comfortable to me but more than ever I think it's important to like make your your even your fleeting passing apartment feel like a comfortable home yeah oh I love that well, Lucy, thank you so much for. Oh, I just like hit my knee. <laughs> thank you so much for recording with me and meeting up with me. If anyone doesn't follow you, which like I don't know who those people are, <laughs> where can they find you? Both on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, yeah, everywhere. So Instagram is Lucy B Fink, L U C I E B F I N K, and then 
YouTube, you can probably just find me by typing in my name, Lucy Fink, and um, you'll probably see Refinery29's channel and my channel. And then on TikTok, it's Lucy B. Fink underscore official. I had to make a new one. Apparently, someone already had Lucy oh B. Fink. Oh, that's wild. Um, so that's TikTok. And then, yeah, one thing that I'm, like, kind of working on right now that I'm really excited about for anyone who's interested is I started a Patreon community. Oh, cool. And it's for $25 a month, people can join this additional community of mine where they get two live Q&A sessions with me every month over Zoom. They get custom merch and they get access to a private Facebook group and these five day challenges every month that I'm like helping people go through. So last month we did five days of minimalism and this month it's five days of self care. And basically like I provide everyone with a packet document of like a checklist of all the things they need and then a guide to the five days of how to break down so they can like do these challenges themselves. Awesome. And then are you still doing that Instagram like tutorial? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. So I offered a course with my friend Marjolaine from Germany and um, it's actually right at this moment when we're recording this, the cart is closed, okay. but it's going to be available again at some point. So I can give you the link for the show notes. I think if people, the way that we're actually selling it from now on is people will sign up with their email to get some sort of a freebie. Like we created 33 Instagram caption templates or uh, a video about how we edit photos. And from that email, they're going to be like on an email trigger sequence that ultimately they'll get the landing page for the course, but it won't just be like available online. So I can, I can try to get you the direct link. Cool. But yeah, we created this seven day self paced Instagram branding course for anyone who's hoping to, grow their Instagram, whether for like personal branding or if it, if they want to build their businesses, Instagram, and it kind of goes through everything from like SEO and hashtags and bio optimization to, you know, photos, editing, grid, aesthetics, captions, stories, lives, everything like that. Amazing. Well, thank you again and bye everyone. Bye. Mm -hmm.